you leave encouraged today as we go through the word of God and we meditate on it today. I trust that this theme of revival and renewal is starting to permeate your heart, your mind, your soul, the deepest places of who you are. And this morning, we are going to turn to the next topic in this series, which is revering his presence. We are here today to revere the presence of God. And our scripture this morning comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. I know you were just seated, but would you stand in honor of the reading of God's word? We're going to read this together. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Let's read together in one voice. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Let's pray. Father, we come to you choosing to learn from your word. Would you teach us, O oh God? Holy Spirit, enable us to see what you want us to see. We thank you for the words in 2 Samuel chapter 6. We pray that you teach us about the presence of God. Teach us about what it means and the proximity and the experience of reverencing you. I pray, God, that we would learn from the, the actions and the decisions of David and Uzzah and Obed-Edom, O oh God. I pray that we'd be people who reverence your presence. That your presence would not only just be with us on Sunday mornings, but your presence would go with us wherever we go. And so, Father, we are carriers of your presence because we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, I pray that you teach us and guide us into truth this morning. We want to learn more about your presence. We want to have the right posture and the right approach to you. So, Father, teach us the biblical principles that we need to have. So, Father, we commit this time to you, Jesus. Would you teach us? Lord, I need your help. I humble myself before you, acknowledging my need of you in order to preach the word today with clarity. Would you empower me by your spirit? And, Father, we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said amen. You may be seated. I want to ask you several questions this morning. 
Where has reverence for God's presence gone? Where is the awe? Where is the wonder for the Lord? Do we come too casually to the Lord? Does he care about how we come or should we come as we are? Does the ark and the holy holies in the Old Testament tell us something about how we are approaching God today in this day and in this hour? Is the presence of God something we do want to experience or is it something we want to avoid? All of these questions are important because 2 Samuel 6 reminds us that we serve a holy God. All the situations and the time periods may change, the context may change, the methods may even change, but let me tell you today, the one thing that is constant and sure is that God is holy. Before we examine this narrative together, we need to flash back in Scripture. We need to understand the backstory in 1 Samuel 4, where the Israelites were in battle with the Philistines. And let me read to you from verses 5 to 11. The scripture says, When the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Isn't that awesome? And then hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Oh, God, a God has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has ever happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Not gods, it's just one God. They were the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. What the Israelites thought was an advantage to them actually didn't help them at all. The presence of the Lord did not save Israel from the hands of their enemy, and it is not that God departed from his mobile residence in the ark but that the people used the ark instead of seeking the Lord themselves. They were focused on just having that box in the presence of their company instead of actually bowing their knees before the Lord and petitioning their God in heaven to help them and give them direction. And so they assumed that the presence of God in the ark meant an automatic win for them. In verses 16 to 18 of the same chapter, we read about what happened to Israel's spiritual leader when the news reached home that day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? And the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died. For he was an old man and he was heavy. And he had led Israel 40 years. I just like the fact they add and he was heavy. I think that was such an important thing to know. You see, this was the worst news that a priest could ever hear. Not that his sons were dead, but the, that the ark of the Lord was captured. The absence of God's presence was intensified by the symbolic birth of a grandchild to Eli. And his 
child's, the grandchild's name would be Ichabod. And we find this in verses 19 to 21. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying... The woman attending her said, don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, what a name, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. You know that in, in Old Testament, every name had a meaning. Ichabod, glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the death of her father-in-law and her husband. Almost the entire family responsible for the ark of God was dead. And the only surviving child's name would be this constant reminder of their failure as a family to seek God. After seven months of the hand of the Lord being heavy upon them and the people being in this constant state of panic, the Philistines returned the ark to Israel. Isn't that crazy? They took the ark with them, and they thought they had an advantage. And then seven months later, they're like, no, you take the ark. We don't want it anymore. And what is ironic is what happened to the Israelites in comparison to the Philistines in 1 Samuel 6, 19 to 20. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow that the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth asked, but who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? While the Philistines were struck with tumors and with a plague of rats, they didn't have it good, but the Israelites were struck down dead. And why is there such an extreme in reactions from God with the Israelites and God with the Philistines? Why did God react this way? It's because the Israelites knew better. The Israelites knew much better. They were not authorized to touch or to look into the ark. And yet they still disobeyed God. We find the summary statement in 1 Samuel 7, 1 to 2. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. So with all of this background in our minds, we now flash forward back to the text in, that we're looking at, 2 Samuel chapter 6, which provides us with great news. And that great news is about the retrieval of the Ark of the Covenant. However, like the past, its journey to Jerusalem is not uneventful. And so this morning, I want to turn your attention to the three characters and the lessons we can learn from them, from David and from Uzzah and from Obed-Edom and how they each engage with God's presence in 2 Samuel 6, 1 to 11. And I want you to know, I want to set the record straight this morning, is that all of them had good intentions. We can have the best of intentions, but each of them had a different experience with the Lord. And my intention this morning is not to make you afraid, but to help you comprehend the reverence that ought to be displayed before God, for we serve the very same holy God who has not changed. 
First point this morning is David's passion for the presence. David had a great passion for the presence of the Lord. Verses 1 to 5, David again brought together all of the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart. That's very important. Pay attention to that. New cart. And brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, son of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with cassinets and harps and lyres and timbrels and sistrums and cymbals. Though David had very little interaction with the ark in the past, he understood the role the ark played in Israelite history from the time of Moses. And to bring the ark to Jerusalem was both strategic and prophetic. It was strategic because for David, the ark would confirm Jerusalem as the new epicenter of Israelite faith. People would travel then to Jerusalem to worship God during the festivals and the celebrations. It was prophetic because he was also bringing the very raw presence of God back into the center of the lives of his people. It meant that God was at the center of them all. After all, David is famously described as a man after God's own heart, isn't he? You cannot have God's presence unless God has your heart. Though David took the personal initiative to seek out the presence of the Lord, he involved many others in the process. It's not just for the pastors to seek out the Lord. It is for the people of God to seek out the Lord. Instead of making it about him, he made it about them. Instead of me making it about me, it is about us. And David involved 30,000 young men likely military enrolled or eligible men in this homeward procession of the ark to Jerusalem. And they were active participants, you'll see in the text. They are not passive spectators. They were worshipers. And the presence of God evoked such celebration in their hearts. They celebrated with all their might, meaning that their worship required the exertion of their physical strength. And a great way, my friends, to determine whether you've worshipped this morning is whether you've actually exerted your physical capacity, your physical strength, not just your mental or your emotional capacity. Because it takes effort to worship the Lord. David, a harpist and a songwriter at heart, he modeled the appropriate type of worshipful response towards the presence of God. I'm going to need some help from Pastor Phil and the team this morning. They're going to come back just for a moment. Because worship needs to be at the heart of this church. Because worship needs to be at the heart of your life. So I need their help this morning. I'm going to need your help. Instead of spectating this morning, I'm going to need your activity this morning, your exertion of your strength. And for those who are musically gifted, David's worship team included the cassinets and the harps and the lyres and the timbrels and the sistrums. What's a sistrum? <laughs> and cymbals. Well, the presence of the Lord requires a Psalm 150 type of praise. 
And I wonder if we have that kind of praise to left in us this morning. The scripture says, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for the acts of power. Praise him for surpassing greatness. Praise him with the, the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and with the lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and the pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Why don't you just stand up with me just for a moment? Can we do what Psalm 150 says? And can we praise the Lord with the worship team this morning? Do you have something left in you today? Can you lift up your voices today? Can you raise your hands to the Lord? Can you shout for joy? Can you sing to the Lord? Can you magnify his holy name? Can you worship him in this place today? Hallelujah. We praise you, Lord, and we magnify your holy name. You are exalted in this place. You are exalted on the earth. You are exalted in the sanctuary. So we stop what we're doing and we interrupt the sermon with a moment of praise. everything that has breath praise the Lord we praise the Lord you see it's not just their job to praise the Lord it's our job to praise the Lord so that's why we praise because he's worthy of our praise because he has done great things for us we are filled with joy we need to come into this place and have some spontaneous times of worship we need to come into this house and not be afraid of what people think of us we just need to praise him we just need to praise him thank you Jesus be seated today thank you Jesus it's okay to have those praise breaks I pray that that would not just happen on a Sunday morning but this would happen during the week this would happen when you're in your car. This would happen when you're at work. This would happen when you're at school, that you just have your own little praise break that helps you orient your mind around Jesus. We get back into the scripture today. David's passion came to a climax in 2 Samuel chapter 6, 14 to 15. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. When was the last time you danced? before the Lord. <laughs> While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. You see, not only did David celebrate with all his might, but he danced with all his might. And some might see this as being undignified, undignified behavior before a holy God and amongst his people. But you see, the why and the what were justified by the who, who we worship. 
That dictates how and why and what we worship. And those who are concerned about the presence of the Lord are not concerned about what other people think about their expressions of worship. I don't care what I look like. You don't need to care what people look like. Don't look around. Focus on him. And I've been asking the Lord, Lord, you know, if we're going to experience what we're preaching now, if we're going to experience revival, if we're going to experience renewal, then we need to have a celebratory atmosphere here at WPA. We need breakthrough in our worship times. We've become too reserved. We've become too conservative. I'm not telling you, we're not going to go crazy, okay? There's nothing crazy here. But we're going to seek the Lord together. We're going to seek a genuine, authentic move of God. And if we're going to use this picture of biblical worship, then some of us need to get out of our comfort zones. Some of us need to break free from what has been holding us back and restraining us from worshiping God authentically. Second point this morning, Uzzah's a reverence for the presence. Verses 6 and 7, when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. It's important to clarify this morning that God cannot be contained. God's presence just can't be contained in the Ark of the Covenant. You see, God is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere. So then why is the Ark of the Covenant so significant to the Israelites? Well, this object was designed by God himself. He had his instruction, and he did not rest inside of it. He rested upon it. In Exodus 25, 22, God said to Moses, there above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the Ark of the Covenant law, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. And he also provided rules as to who could touch the Ark and move the Ark, and then how it was to be handled, how it was to be moved. See, sometimes I think this is true. Sometimes we have all the right intentions, but we use all the wrong methods. Did you notice that the ark was being moved by a cart instead of being carried by the hands and the shoulders of the Levites? That's a problem. Now, you might see that as insignificant fact, but it is very significant to God in this time because the cart was a secular substitute for a sacred method. The cart was the Philistine way of getting the ark out. And the question I have for you today is what kind of substitutes have we made for our worship? And I think one of the big ones is we've substituted an experience for Scripture. Instead of reading and finding out what the Bible has to say about worship, we just want to have the lights and have the show and have an entertainment moment. That's not what it's about. The Philistines left with the, cart, with the ark on the cart, and now the Israelites were returning with the ark on a new cart. And perhaps it was a practical issue factoring in the terrain since the house of Abinadab was on a hill. That kind of makes sense. But be that as it may, it was not the scripture-guided method. Number seven, six to nine, God had instructed. So Moses took the carts and oxen and gave them to the Levites. And he gave two carts and four oxen to the Gershonites as their work required. And he gave four carts and eight oxen to the Marianites, uh, the Marianites as their work required. And they were all under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. 
But Moses did not give any to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. In the past, I've mentioned that there are two principles in the theology of worship. One is called the regulative principle, and the other is called the normative principle. And here's what the regulative principle means. It's that we only do, we explicitly do, that which Scripture prescribes for worship. If Scripture says do this, we do it. If Scripture says don't do this, we don't do it. The normative principle says otherwise, that we can do anything that Scripture does not prohibit for worship. That we can do anything, the box is wide, but there are certain things that we cannot do. And this is an example of the regulative principle at work in Scripture. David, Ahio, and Uzzah did not have the right to make up their own rules on this matter. God had already explicitly detailed his preferred method for moving that ark. So the question becomes, how do you know how to approach God? You need to determine what those biblical principles are and how to apply them in your life. But here's the good news is that while the majority of the Old Testament follows that regulative principle, these are God's rules and do it God's way, the majority of the New Testament follows a normative principle where you can do it a lot of different ways as long as God doesn't prohibit it. In verse 4, we learn that Ahio was walking in front of the ark, so we can safely assume that Uzzah was walking behind the ark. And when the cart stumbled, Uzzah, with all the best intentions, but with the wrong methods, he tried to steady the cart with his hands. And he was irreverent because this would never have happened, my friends, if the ark was carried on the arms and the shoulders of the Levites. Never would have happened. This guy would still be alive at that time. But the ark was to never be touched. Never means never. Okay, so then why did, the Phil- why did the Philistines not die when they were transporting the ark on the cart in 1 Samuel? The presence of God poured out wrath upon those who ignore God's law, not those who are ignorant of God's law. You see, the Israelites, again, knew better. They knew the scriptures. They knew the traditions, but they still disobeyed. In 1 Chronicles 15, 13, David explained, it was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. There is a prescribed way for these people. Now, I share the scripture with you today not to scare you, but to warn you of irreverence. Could God... Do the same thing that he did to Uzzah today. I believe he could, but I, think, I don't think he will. Because we no longer have an ark, and we no longer have a temple. We no longer have a holy of holies. And so then what is the prescribed way of worship? Here's the only way you and I can worship the Lord. The only way we are to worship God is through our mediator, Jesus Christ. That's it. If you come through Christ and what he has done on the cross and how he's resurrected from the grave, guess what? You have access. Christ has fulfilled all of God's regulations, and it is through Christ that we have access to approach the throne room of God, of grace, freely and boldly. You don't have to be afraid of being struck dead, my friends. You have access today through Jesus Christ, your Lord. 
Third point this morning, Obed-Edom's hospitality for the presence, verses 8 to 11. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez-Uzzah. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Isn't that awesome? See, there are two things that hold us back from welcoming the presence of God. Both of these traits are seen in David's reactions to Uzzah's sudden death and how he processed that tragic experience. And the first thing we see was that David was angry with the Lord. One of the things that keep us away from the presence of the Lord is that we're actually angry with God about something else. And if I'm tracing things correctly this morning, Uzzah was David's brother, Abinadab's son. Therefore, it was his nephew. This hits close to home. He was only following his uncle's orders to bring the ark home. And he wanted to protect the ark from falling off the cart to the ground. And so he put his hand out to steady it. And instead, Uzzah fell dead on the ground beside the ark. And David's angry. Sometimes we fail to understand the things that God does. It's hard. It's mysterious. We don't know why. In this case, it's because he's a holy God. And David expected the outpouring of God's blessing. He was bringing home the ark to the city. But instead, David witnessed the outpouring of God's wrath in death. And it was this anger that distanced David from the ark. You know what David did? He said, I want to have nothing to do with this ark. Go take it to that guy's house and leave it there. That's something, sometimes that's what we do because we're angry with God. I want to have nothing to do with the presence of God because he, he disappointed me that day. Because I was hurt that day and it didn't seem like he cared about my life. Second thing we see was that David was afraid of the Lord. I think to some degree all humans should be afraid of the Lord because he is holy. But David rhetorically asked, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? And if this happened to Uzzah on the way, what would happen to David when he arrived in Jerusalem? It was this fear that caused David to revise his plans concerning the return of the ark to Jerusalem. Now I want to explore with you why David chose Obed-Edom of all people that day. And it is certainly not because he had a closest house or because he had a beautiful house. It was because of who Obed-Edom was. In fact, Obed-Edom was a Gittite, which refers to a man coming from the area of Gath, of Philistia. But this is just a reference to where he lived or where he came from, not that he was a Philistine. So who was this Obed-Edom then? He was listed in 1 Chronicles 15, 18 among the Levites who served as gatekeepers. Obed-Edom and Jeel, the gatekeepers. He was listed in 1 Chronicles 15, 21 among the musicians. Obed-Edom, Jeel, and Azariah were there were to play the harps directing according to Sheminith, which is a way of singing or a way of playing. Furthermore, he was also listed in 1 Chronicles 15, 24. Among the doorkeepers of the ark, Obed-Edom and Jehiah were also to be doorkeepers for the ark. This guy is all about God's business. 
Obed-Edom's entire life was completely dedicated to serving in the presence of the Lord. And so to Obed-Edom, the ark was not an inconvenience. The presence of the Lord was not an inconvenience. It was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to demonstrate hospitality towards the presence of God. And he was not angry like David. The next three months of his life are going to be with that ark. He was not afraid like David. He was open, he was ready, and he was available to whatever God wanted to do. And friends, it's moments in the presence of God that can change you forever. I tell you, one moment in the presence of God can change the entire trajectory of your life. As time passed, King David, in the three months, he discovered his desire to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 to 13, the scripture says, Now King David was told, the ark has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Looks like a good deed. I'm not sure it's a perfect deed. Obed-Edom had welcomed God's presence with great hospitality, but surely the ark could not stay at his home forever. We understand that. But this time, David came with great intentions, but in hindsight, we see that sometimes we want God's blessings more than we want his presence. What was the nature of Obed-Edom's blessings? I want you to see what God did in Obed-Edom's life. Not only was he blessed, but his entire household was blessed. In 1 Chronicles 16, 4-5, we read, Obed-Edom also had sons, Shemaiah, the firstborn, Jehozabad, the second, Joah, the third, uh, Sekar, the fourth, Nathaniel, the fifth, Amiel, the sixth, Issachar, the seventh, and Peolathai, the eighth. And then it says, for God has blessed Obed-Edom. Come on, don't you want that description over your life? That God has blessed Chris Patiath. That God has blessed whoever is hearing this message today. Then in 1 Chronicles 16, 8, we read, All these were descendants of Obed-Edom. They and their sons and their relatives were capable men with the strength to do the work. Descendants of Obed-Edom, 62 in all. This guy's family grew. And he was also blessed in 1 Chronicles 16, 37 to 38, with the opportunity to minister before the ark on a regular basis. David left Asaph and his associates before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister there regularly, according to each day's requirement. He also left Obed-Edom and his 68 associates to minister with them. Isn't that amazing? Not only was he and his household blessed, his ministry was blessed. Friends, if you want to have a blessed life, if you want to have a blessed family, if you want to have a blessed ministry, guess what? Get near the presence of God. That's where the blessing is. And guess what? You don't keep the blessing just within those realms. You take the blessing with you wherever you go. You take that blessing to your school. You take that blessing to your workplace. You take that blessing to your neighborhood. And people see it. People notice it. And people want a piece of it. The person I want to be like in the scripture is not King David. I want to be like Obed-Edom. 
I want to love God with no conditions. I want to love God with no restrictions. I want to make room for God in my life. I want to make room for God in my home. I want to make room for God in my church. And God's desire then is to bless those who sincerely invite and welcome his presence. As I conclude and the worship team returns, there is a character in this story who I have not looked at on purpose because I was saving her to the very end. This woman is Michael, Saul's daughter, David's wife. And we see part one of Michael's reaction to the presence of the Lord in 1 Chronicles 15, 29. And the scripture says, as the ark of the covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. Think about that for a moment. See, Michael was not part of the procession coming in. She did not welcome the ark in Jerusalem. Instead, she sat at a distance, she watched from a window, and she criticized her own husband. And isn't that what we do sometimes? I want to warn you of the temptation of distancing yourself from the presence of the Lord. Sometimes we're the ones sitting at the window, watching from afar and criticizing what's going on. Maybe it's in the back row. Maybe you stand or sit with your arms crossed. Maybe you roll your eyes as I preach or as worship takes place. Maybe you criticize the person who sings out loud or worships demonstratively. I, I don't know. But your choice of proximity to the presence of God says something powerful about your spirituality. The reality is you cannot be close to God in theory and yet be far from his presence in reality. It doesn't work that way. You can't have it both ways. If you're close to God, you've got to be close to his presence. And as Michael explicitly despised her husband, she implicitly despised the presence of God. The very reason why David was dancing, the very reason why David was celebrating that day was because God, God has done some great things in his life. And then we see part two of Michael's reaction to the presence of the Lord. In 2 Samuel 6, 20 to 22, when David returned home to bless his household, remember, there's a blessing that comes with the presence of God. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. See, at some point, Michael couldn't contain it any longer. She couldn't watch from the windowsill. She had to come down. She had to do something. She had to say something. She had to give her opinion on the matter. And she came down to David and she criticized him for being undignified, especially among these young girls. But here's the reality, friends. Not everyone will understand your genuine expressions of celebration and joy that come when you're in the presence of the Lord. They won't. 
Or some of you completely avoid the presence of the Lord because you think it's going to make you look foolish. But that's not the case. David's undignified behavior was only foolishness in the eyes of those who thought they were wise. Our celebration is charismatic in the eyes of a conservative person. But as Christians who revere God's presence, friends, it's time to join the celebration and it's time to stop the criticism. It really is. I know when the Holy Spirit moves, it gets complicated, for lack of better words. But can we embrace the celebration? Can you trust me as your pastor to go through those moments carefully with the Lord? And can we ensure that we stay in the mode of celebration instead of moving the pendulum to criticism? That's weird. They're loud. What's going on? This is not meant to be a circus. I get it. It's not going to happen. But it's going to be edifying, and it's going to be building up the church. And we're going to ensure, as pastors, that we do everything that we can to ensure that that happens in those moments. But you got to trust us. And I also trust you that when you share, when the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, that you ensure that it's the Holy Spirit and not just you. And together, we will seek the presence of the Lord together. That's how it works. So I want to encourage the presence of the Lord in this place. I don't want us to be conservative and quiet and just spectate. See, Uzzah represents to us the reality of the curse of irreverence. But Obed-Edom represents to us the reality of the blessing of reverence. And Michael represents to us the unchanged heart. But David represents to us the changed heart. So choose carefully what kind of person you're going to be. Don't be the Uzzah who deals with things in an unbiblical way. Don't be like Michael, who criticizes from a distance. Be like Obed-Edom and house the presence of God. Facilitate, make room for it. And be like David, be a little bit undignified. Because who cares what people think about you? We come and we gather to worship Jesus Christ. And through him, we come boldly into the presence of God. And there is a blessing to be received, my friends, when we come into his presence. Let's pray.